If you haven't heard me talk before, you'll probably notice I sound like Shrek. <laughs> this is not an accident. My other gag for starting today was to say that I'm sorry there's no paper for this, but I've been very, very busy, almost as busy as the guy who's prepping Harriet Myers. Unfortunately, that one's no longer appropriate. So let's talk about constructivism and political economy. There's a couple of stories I want to do here today. The first one is to try and suggest why it is that constructivism, I think, more or less took over international relations theory in the 1990s, at least as far as the United States is concerned, and failed, singularly failed, in fact, to infiltrate international political economy in the same way. I want to suggest why this failure is more an illusion than a reality, and why, in fact, there's actually a lot of constructivist IP out there. What this shift means, what it entails, is also important. Why is this occurring? Why is this occurring now? And why we actually may need to pay attention to this shift, because it may tell us something very interesting about the way that all of us do political science. The second story is my cheeky one. Uh, when you get tenure, you can finally say what you think. And uh, I just got tenure. Um, and there's a Glasgow expression which is to say the boy's never been backwards about coming forwards and I've never been backwards about coming forwards so now I'm really going to tell you what I think. And this one goes like this. Why is it that the more confidence with which we hold a theory the more likely it is to turn out wrong? Why do our theories blow up? Why is it in the social sciences we have a terrible, terrible job with prediction and it doesn't seem to be getting any better? And I think actually constructivism and thinking about constructivism and political economy can actually tell us something interesting about that as well. But first of all, a couple of questions to ponder, and I'm going to come back to these questions. The first one is, how many of you guys have played Russian roulette? I don't want an answer just now, but I will come back to that. And the second one related to my second objective is, why is it that our theories about the world are constantly surprised? Let's think about a couple of examples. Number one, if I went to a bond trader or actually no, a financial analyst, in 1913 and said, give me a good, strong, diversified portfolio that's risk-averse but nonetheless has high growth potential. I would have been invested in Russia, Argentina, and Germany, and six months later I would have had toilet paper. World War II, anyone see that one coming? Well, after the fact, we're really good at it. But if you think about the primary theory of world politics, at least as far as the United States is concerned, neorealism, born in the context of the Cold War, it has a real problem explaining World War II and the end of the Cold War. Now, you could make the argument, as was made once before, that these are only two data points, but they're really two big data points. And if you can't explain that, you're not carrying much water. So these are the type of issues I want to get into whilst talking about constructivism and political economy. So, like Randy, who's sitting there, we did IR at Columbia together. I was an IR person when I started. I'm still half an IR person. And... Um, I went into Helen Milner's class and I sat down and I did realism and bipolarity and all this sort of stuff. And I literally had the argument made in 1991 that the fact that the Soviet Union has collapsed doesn't disprove this theory because it's only one data point. I, I have no idea what to make of this. The entire theory is built on this data point. I mean, that's an astonishing claim. And then something interesting happened because by 1993, the debate of mainstream IR became this thing between neoliberalism and neorealism and neoliberal institutionalism. And then the, the debate as it was canonized in that Baldwin volume. And that seemed to me to be really strange because the whole thing was basically premised upon this is how I specify an agent's preference function. This is how I specify the other guy. That's real life gains. That's absolute gains. Let's just run the argument. There's no debate. And then it kind of collapsed on itself. 
And then very shortly after that, because we had Hobbes in the form of realism and we had Locke in the form of liberalism, that Rousseau comes along in the form of constructivism. And, you know, to fill out the holy troika, as it were. And then by the late 1990s, the debate had disappeared. And there was a friend of mine, Colin Elman, uh, organized a panel at APSA in 1996, I think it was. And this was actually astonishing to me. The panel was, is realism still a research program? And I thought, wow, that's the first instantiation of a second derivative I've ever seen in real life. Because realism is no longer a research program. The research program is realism. Is realism a research program? It's like one step back on itself. And that's really a sign of theoretical degeneration. Now, I'm not ragging on realism for the sake of it. I think it's an example of something bigger. Now, given this, constructivism appears and pff, takes over. Suddenly all these names, Race, Chekhov, Went, Klotz, Sicking, Kier, Legros, everybody's there. And that voice was not there in IR just a few years previously. Filling the journals, staffing the editorial boards. I mean, they've really done a lot to take over. And it didn't happen in IPE. Now, two claims can be made in this regard. The first one is this. There was a lot of constructivism in IPE. It's just that it wasn't recognized as such because of artificial subfield barriers. It was called historical institutionalism, comparative political economy, the ideas literature or whatever. But they were dealing with essentially the same dependent variables. It was the same sort of thing. Or there was a harsher version of this. More fundamentally, the IPE is different. Therefore, constructivism doesn't work. And that's what I want to get to. But let's think about the first one. There's no constructivism in IPE. Well, let's think about some famous works. Peter Katzenstein's Small States and World Markets. Usual story about corporatism, export dependence, actually relies upon a story about long-run norms of cooperation emerging out of feudal arrangements in these small states in the Middle Ages. Take that out, the story doesn't work. Catherine Sickink, why developmental, developmentalism doesn't work in Argentina versus Brazil. Because one's, one set of bourgeois actors doesn't trust the state and the other one does. It's about trust, it's about norms. Peter Swenson, somebody we don't normally think is dealing with these types of issues, writes about the trilemma that unions face of achieving full employment, high wages, and a norm of fairness. Take out the norm of fairness, there is no trilemma. One can go on. Kate McNamara's work, Rawi Abdullah's work, my own work, Dan Nixon's work, lots of people's work. Points in one direction. We're a bunch of epistemological nihilists hell-bent on wrecking social science. No, I don't think that's the case. I really think, as Kate McNamara said once, you know what, I started off as a good old material girl, and I wanted to explain, that's actually her quote, not mine, and I, I wanted to explain EMU, and I started off with optimal currency areas. Doesn't cut it. I started off with the, you know, the idea that politicians want things for themselves and realized that Mitterrand would be dead soon, coal would be out of office, and Major was definitely gone, so why are we spending all this time doing this beyond me? And I ended up telling a story about our ideas because that's the only thing that seemed to make sense. So if they're not epistemological nihilists, and there is a possibility that our normal theories aren't answering the questions that we want, then maybe we should be doing more of this. Which brings me to my second point. The defense is, no, the IPE is different. This is from something I'm writing just now. I quote myself, as I like to do. The usual suspects, the IPE is different. Unlike the polity with its mess of identities, ideas, and cultures and the like, in the economic world, while informational uncertainties abound, actors have a much more straightforward time of things. They have interests and rationally try to follow them, subject to the interests of others in the material environment in which they find themselves. Indeed, such agents' interests are usually derived from the structural position in which they find themselves. Sheltered sector, employee, export-oriented, capitalist, dependent state, service sector, firm, etc., etc., 
And these interests are actionable to the extent allowed by the familiar laws of collective action, resource availability, and individual rationality. International security politics may be opaque and driven by identities, but the IPE is clear, driven by interests, and best understood rationally. If that's true, everything I'm about to say makes no sense whatsoever, and you are, of course, entitled to arrive at that judgment. However, I think that that would be premature. I want us to try and suggest today that the way the world works is, in fact, far different from the way that political economy assumes. Indeed, it seems stable. The IPE seems different precisely because agents construct the, ability, the stability that they operate within and not because of the existential materiality of their surroundings. These two quotes that I've put up here are from John Maynard Keynes, and these are going to be the boundaries of which I'm working with. The first one... Classicism, what you call the standard model, the standard theories, and IPE, the rationalist default option, represents a limiting point of one of the possible points of equilibrium. You can be there. The world can look like that. But it can also look very, very different. And there's no guarantee you're going to be there. What complicates this is that the very action of moving towards an equilibrium displaces the equilibrium through time, such that we live in a world not of comparative statics, but one of dynamics one of incredible endogenous complexity, such that changes in one aspect affect changes in another aspect, and we cannot really control for these things, even in our models. Or we can, but we do so crudely. I'll explain why. So the world may be much more unpredictable than we think. We live in a world of great contingency and dynamics rather than one of equilibrial statics, which is what the second, point, the second quote talks to. Now, what happens if you do IPE thinking like this? Well, let's go back to the usual assumptions. Agents have interests, they're given by the material context, those interests are reflected in preferences, that are clear and are not subject to random reversals, realising those interests depends upon resources, collective action limitations and information. If this is the case, then this is what the world looks like. It's the, world is, the world that agents face is one of risk with incomplete information. As such, given enough trials, enough attempts, enough cases, if you want to put it that way, outcomes are probabilistically normal over multiple trials. If you think about this in terms of running computer simulations, if you run Monte Carlo simulations, if you run enough trials, ergodicity kicks in, and essentially things tend towards the mean that is assumed to be out there. So very few things happen out here, very few things happen out here, and our world becomes Gaussian. Ergodicity means that the expected mean and the expected variance in the higher moments converge towards their true values given enough times. What that means for the world that we live in is that very weird things happen very occasionally on either side of the curve, and most of the stuff happens in the middle. And if that's the case, you can predict a lot, and you can do a lot with standard models. But what happens if you change to these new orienting assumptions of unpredictability, contingency, and dynamics? Well, I think that we end up not in a world of risk and incomplete information, but one of uncertainty. And there's a great difference. If you look at how social scientists generally treat uncertainty, they actually talk about risk. They don't really talk about uncertainty at all. What they talk about is probabilistic trials, priors, drawing on priors, Bayesian update, and so on and so forth. There is something to draw upon that one can calculate by sampling the past what likely outcomes in the future will be. This is risk. It's not uncertainty. Uncertainty is where there are no priors to draw upon. A situation is unique or is regarded by agents as being unique because they simply do not have either the cognitive capacity, the wherewithal, or even the smarts to realize that things are like things that have happened before. And you can also erroneously think that things are like things that have happened before. I, one thing I would mention just now, the script for Iraq cooling down the statue, just think Ceausescu. That was the script. That's probably not the one you meant to draw on as the Bayesian prior, but there you go. Now, 
If the world is risk in a probabilistic sense, then you end up with a Herbert Simon world, cognitive limits of processing plus informational restrictions and environmental complexity lead to uncertainty. The result is that life is gambling with dice. It is risk. One can rank priors. And it's not like that at all. I go back to Keynes. I go back to Knight and others. Uncertainty occurs when there's unique events and agents have no priors to rank and just thus draw upon to make probabilistic calculations. As such, actions cannot be deduced from the structural context, since, as I put it in another place, such structures do not come with an instruction sheet. Everything is mediated. Everything is interpreted. If this is the case, the equilibrium is a moving target. Now, why do we confuse the two? If you admit what I've called Knightian uncertainty, what Benoit Mandelbrot and other people, particularly mathematicians, called wild-type uncertainty, then tractable solutions, probability calculus, Gaussian distributions, ordinary least squares regressions, and all the tools of our trade become very, very shaky. You can't do these things very easily. Keynes knew this. Knight knew this. Most people choose to ignore it. So the key question becomes this. Do we live in a world of risk or uncertainty? Because if we live in a world of risk, I should shut up and sit down. But if we live in a world of uncertainty, we need to rethink a hell of a lot of what we do. So, first answer. The world is normal, that is risky most of the time, but occasionally there are moments of wild-type uncertainty and different dynamics apply. This is the way I used to read. I used to think, and this is what I wrote about in my book, basically the 1930s, where a period where institutions collapsed, agents had no priors to draw upon, they didn't know what was going on. So there was a moment whereby there was, in a sense, a period of emergent causal possibilities, new combinations came together, and we end up resetting institutions in a new way. So classicism is normal. There are moments where it's not normal, and then we get back to classicism. I actually don't think that's right anymore. I actually think now that the world is, in fact, one of great uncertainty mainly, and risk only occasionally. But the world is a world of risk made possible by the certainty generated by agents' actions under uncertainty. This is the key. Stability is a social construction. As such, constructivism, I would suggest, is the general theory, and materialist rational theory is the special theory. As Keynes said, classicism is one point of a possible set of points of equilibrium. Now, if this is all sounding rather abstract and abstruse, let's bring the fun back into it. Back to Russian roulette. Anybody here ever played? Don't all jump at once. All right, may I ask a question? Let's pick on Dan, seeing as he's closest. Would you ever do it? Would you play Russian roulette? No, under no circumstances. All right, let's see under circumstances you'll do it. $10,000 a chamber. A million. Ten million. <laughs> All right, but here's the thing. You're assuming there's six chambers and we're done. What if you knew there was a billion? And it's a billion dollars a chamber. Would you do it? I mean, a billion's a huge number, right? He's calculating. Well, <laughs> but if there's a billion chambers, hmm? I mean, that's sort of life, right? Indeed. I mean, there's a billion chambers in the gun, or there might be. There might be six. The problem is we don't really know. The problem is, in the social world, we observe the outcome of probability generators. We never actually see them. And if you can't see them directly, you get in a hell of a lot of problems, because all you're doing is sampling on outcomes. So where does this take us? The problem, as I've said, is observing the probability distribution of a generator, but not the generator itself. You don't know if there's six bullets or a billion. And we don't know then if the next trigger pull, the next event, the next outcome will blow our brains out or win us a million dollars. The problem is this. You have to know the possible values of the generator. 
But how can we know that if it's not directly observable? We see the outcomes, not what generates the outcomes. So we have standard ways of dealing with this. We sample from past events to generate a probability distribution of likely future events with the assumption that more samples are better than less. Large n advantage, the, square root, the confidence level rises by the square root of the sample increase, etc., etc. More information is better than less. However, as a very clever person called Nassim Taleb put it, quote, one needs a probability distribution to gauge knowledge about future behavior of the distribution from its past results. And at the same time, one needs the past to derive a probability distribution in the first place. In other words, to estimate risk, one has to assume an adequate sample of past events. But how much is enough? And perhaps even more disturbing, can more information lead you astray? Can more information, in fact, be toxic? I want to suggest that it can be. There are three worlds of possibilism, not probability, possibilism. And I'm ripping this straight off of Karl Popper, a much maligned figure in my view. World one is a world of risk, a world of neat probabilities, normality, and standard assumptions. Classicism is the general theory. Worlds two and three are where our alternative assumptions hold, contingency, wild-type uncertainty, where constructivism is a general theory. So what would world one, world, world war one, I'm so used to saying that, I'm an IR, um, what would world one look like? Think about coin tosses, die throws, and roulette wheels. Sample paths rapidly converge. Outcomes are risky in a mild sense. If somebody hides you a six-sided die, you know it's got six sides. You don't have to throw it 100 million times to figure out the expectations, 3.5. Right? You know this very quickly because you've seen the generator. But what if you can't see the generator? What if you don't know it's a 20-sided die? Well, you know, you can still do it. It's a tractable problem, right? Well, what about a roulette wheel? Something absurd like 167 million possible outcomes in a roulette wheel. But you can do it. Because it's simply determined by the material environment. You can get everything out. It's just probabilistically risky. You're gambling with dice. You're playing a roulette. Generators' values, expected means, real means come together very rapidly. Ergodicity applies. With a roulette wheel, as life, you get computational uncertainty. This is the type of uncertainty we normally talk about. This is the world of a normal standard Gaussian distribution. Now, there's another weirder distribution, called, usually called a Gauss-Poisson distribution. This is the world that finance people have become very interested in lately, the world of really skewed distributions and fat tails. Now, you think about the generator here. The generator is something different. The generator is perhaps playing poker. Because it's not just what comes out of the deck. It's not just your processing capacity, although that can, in principle, win you a game. There's bluff. Bluff is something that isn't in the material environment. Another one is the stock market, or in fact any other lottery. While sampling the past can lead to good predictions within defined tolerances, if you work in finance, the Black-Scholes model of options pricing, etc., etc., large events, what's called off-model risk in the tails, can cause blow-ups. And if we think about international finance during the 1990s, one needs to say the tequila crisis, the Russian default, the East Asian crisis, the Argentine devaluation, the Brazilian crisis, the Brazilian devaluation, and the second Argentine crisis. These things seem to happen a lot. That implies that the tails are very, very fat. If you actually do Black-Scholes math, things like the East Asian crisis are called 10 sigma events. They're meant to happen three times in the life of the universe. They actually happen about once every seven years. That tells me that the math for the model and the math for the real world aren't really on the same page. Moreover, the situation may be non-ergodic, regardless of many times you sample. Since in the social world, the assumption of stationarity may not apply. What do I mean by this? 
Imagine a standard polyurn experiment. You start drawing black balls, you start drawing red balls. You know, there's things that we know about Ellsberg's paradox, about choice and this sort of stuff. But that's all normal. Now, imagine underneath the urn, there's a mischievous small child. And she's got a bag of red balls and a bag of, black, a bag of blue black balls or whatever. And you pull out a white ball and she goes, throws in three black ones. Well, what's going to happen? You're going to sample and you're going to end up with a completely skewed understanding as to what's going on. One word, Enron. That's non-stationarity. You can be sampling the results of companies all you want, but if they're lying about their books, it's over. And you get caught by that. And things like that happen in the social world all the time. So we're much more surprised by events than we should be. Fat tail seems to be the order of the day. And events do not occur in a statistically normal way. Let me give you some examples. Half the decline in the dollar versus the yen between 1986 and 2003 happened in 10 days, or 0.21% of the trading time. Here's the distribution. Nothing else. That's probabilistically completely unlikely. And yet that's actually what happens. A couple of historical examples. Remember Suharto? Three weeks before everything went to hell in a handbasket, he was getting an award from the IMF for fostering economic development. And then it became crony capitalism overnight. Major financial crises happen every 17 months. Depends how you define major, my definition of major. Yet Black Scholes math, as I said, is a 10 sigma event. Enron is mischievous children. And a particularly poignant example, I was quoted on the radio with this, it was a very nice line. The Louisiana hurricane was not predicted, it was expected. And that's a very, very big difference. Because in type one worlds, prediction and expectation are the same, they converge. In type two worlds, they don't. You might know it's coming, but you don't know when. The bottom line is this. The generator cannot be directly observed, only inferred from the outcomes. Most of the action is in the error term. Inferring from the outcome is inherently, uncer inherently uncertain. The third world, inherent instability, what's called technically a Pareto-Levy-Mandelbot distribution. Very difficult to draw these because you only see them after the fact. But one way to think about it is the following. Everything's normal, everything's normal, everything's normal. And if you're sampling back, right, I'm drawing a Gaussian, and the bigger my sample goes, getting up there, more I'm sampling, more I'm sampling. Now, was that an outlier? Or was that a quantum change? Oh, well, that's two outliers, two data points. World War II, the end of Cold War, everything else is fine. <laughs> well, if you sample all of the data points, you will end up with that curve. But that curve doesn't describe that at all. Well, what, what would that, why would you want to do this? All swans are white, all swans are white, all swans are white, black swan. All right? Sometimes called a black swan distribution. The generator here is the global economy. Too many variables, not enough outcomes. Problems of theoretical underdetermination and post hoc curve drawing are endemic. One of the biggest problems in the social sciences at high levels of generality is the simple fact that we have too many variables and too few outcomes attached to them. So you can draw curves over huge amounts of data that are exclusive to other bits of data that tell just as compelling stories. And it's very difficult to adjudicate between them. If we then accept that there could be complex notions of causality, such as emergent causality, which I'll talk about at the end, then the situation for that type of work gets very, very testy. There's a technical problem with it that's even worse, though. You can sample the past till doomsday and get more wrong. Information becomes toxic. Again, as Nassim Taleb puts it, it's not the case that it takes time for the experimental moments to converge to the true moments. In this case, these moments simply do not exist. 
This means that no amount of observation whatsoever will give us the expected mean, the expected variance, or the higher moments that are true, close to the true moments, since no true values exist. Well, how can you have this? How can you have no true values in a distribution? Well, I think the answer is this, because the world is fundamentally uncertain, since what counts as causes of phenomena in one period are not causes in another, people, in another period. The very action of moving towards an equilibrium displaces the equilibrium through time. As such, any sample of past events can confirm the past, but cannot be projected into the future with confidence if it's a type 3 or a type 2 situation. Type 1, yes. Type 2, dodgy. Type 3, not a chance. Now, let me give you an example of this. I was also, when I was at Columbia, I did a lot of work in economics as well. And one of the things that you find out if you work with people like Dick Nelson, who actually invented evolutionary economics and has a long view of the field, is that most people don't really look at the history of their fields. And one of the scary things about macroeconomics is it's had five different general theories of inflation over the past 50 years. How can you have five different general theories? That makes no sense whatsoever. Now, disciplinary myopia, the fact that only, people only learn what's out of grad school plus or minus seven years, and that's a cohort, and that's all people learn. There's a sociological reason for this. Also happens with banks, right? A classic example is just digress for a minute. Um, the GKO crisis with the Russians in 1996-97. Uh, Russians come out, they have no tax raising ability whatsoever, and they say we'll give you 40% a year on a bond. But we'll give you forward contracts on the rubles so you're hedged, so there's no way it can fail. Western financial institutions fall over themselves to give it, and the Russians turn around and basically give them the finger and walk off of $40 billion. Everyone associated with that debacle is fired. So what happens to the institutional memory? Two years later, the Russians come out. Hey, I've got a bond for you, 20%. <laughs> now, there's sociological reasons why this happened, but I think there's a more fundamental one as well. Think about it. I'll tell you what these theories were. In the 50s, inflation was due to balance of payments disparities. And then in the 60s, it became technological obsolescence, what was variously called the social limits to growth theory. Then in the 70s, it became monetarism, monetary imbalances, government largesse, that was the public choice monetarist critique. Then in the 80s, it was labour market rigidities. In the 90s, it became financial market credibility. And now it's a combination of the last two because I haven't made anything else up yet because there's no inflation to actually worry about. Now, what does this show? Well, it might show that general theories are actually special theories or it might show something else, that the causes of inflation change over time such that any theory of its appearance at T1 is redundant for guarding against its appearance at T2. And this is why I'm a firm opponent of European Monetary Union. I think it's European sadomonetarism. It's insane. Essentially, we're guarding constitutionally against an inflation that had causes that are very unlikely to be repeated with a central bank settlement and constitution, which is guarding against the horse that bolted from the stable 20 years ago. This is silly. This makes no sense. But we can't help but think that way. It's the way that we do things. In a type 3 world, you can generate a seemingly normal distribution through sampling the past, and you can be confident that's the way the world looks. But the problem is, there's no mean to sample for, since, as Keynes put it, there's no limiting point of equilibrium. As such, what happens next cannot be estimated probabilistically. Moreover, to throw a little bit of Hayek into the mix, if knowledge is causal and we do not know what we will know in the future, then any, any assumption about future states must, by definition, be necessarily incomplete. And that's not incomplete information about what will happen. It's about incomplete information about what we will know and hence what we can do. There's no way around this. So what world do we live in? Type 1, too certain. We should all be millionaires. 
I mean, hell, with an Apple Mac computer, you could base it a little laptop, you could calculate all the probabilities of anything that could ever happen in the world and get a great distribution and figure it out to one, two, three standard deviations and Bob's your uncle. And that doesn't seem to work too much. Two, possibly, I think the world is fat tails. But I actually think that three is the normal condition. That is to say we live in a world of great uncertainty and contingency. Why then does the world seem to be stable a large part of the time? Why then, in Keynes' terms, do we seem to live in a classical world when we're lucky? And I think the answer is this. It's why we need to listen to constructivism. The world is type four, but agents construct stability using ideas, norms, conventions, institutions, thus making a type three world behave like a type two world. The problem is most of our theories ignore that and assume a type one world. So there's a huge degree of slippage between the two states. Now, why is this the case? Let me give you an off-the-wall example, which I think is illustrative. Imagine that we're all ancient Greeks, and we're living in Minikos, because it's a particularly nice island. It's got great beaches in the south. And so we're sitting around, you know, eating dolma and drinking resina for about 300 years. And we map out the stars. And we know, we can tell, with incredible probabilism, incredible probabilistic accuracy, which star's coming up when. Years in advance, it helps with navigation, it helps with colonization, it helps with warfare. Brilliant. Here's our theory. Every night, a large cat called Spot comes out. And Spot shakes her tail or rakes her litter or does something like that. And that's what makes the stars go around. Now, all of our observations are correct. All of our predictions are correct. But our theory is lunacy. Does it matter? No, not at all. That one really works in terms of the classic as-if predictive model. But here's the difference. Anything that we think about the stars has no effect on the stars whatsoever. There is a complete independence of subject and object. However, when we think about the economy, we cause things to happen. If we all happen to believe that future movements in M1B in the monetary base are positively correlated with future inflation, then we will take actions to make sure that our portfolios are altered such that a future state that wouldn't have happened absent those ideas actually comes about. There is no independence of subject and object. And if that's the case and your theories become causal, you're implicated in the thing you're sampling. That gets really messy really quickly. Social systems, particularly economic systems, are vastly different from natural systems. For example, if we believe that movements in the monetary base are positively correlated, or we believe in rational expectations, then we will act in a certain way, draw design models in a certain way, and we'll probably be surprised because of it. Absent these constructions and our actions and thus the nature of the system would be completely different. But also, tellingly, these are the things that create stability. Because we do believe that inflation is harmful and that movements in the monetary base foretell it brings about the coordinations of agents' actions and expectations. This is why we build institutions. This is why institutions govern us in terms of giving us rules. But these things are at base not given by any property of the system itself. They are guesstimates. They are constructions. They are at base ideas, crystallized in human form. These are the mechanisms by which stability and change operate, and they're not normally what we think they are. Interactive events predominate. The world is dynamic. It is contingent. Now, I said I wasn't dragging on neorealism, but it is a great example of it. It's a great theory. It really fitted the facts. But the failure is basically what I'm talking about. You can sample the past till doomsday and project bipolarity is the most stable structure of all time. And when one of the poles blows up because it's basically defined as off-model risk and highly unlikely to happen, you're going to be surprised. It's interactive effects. Who'd have ever thought 
based upon these ideas that we thought, the way that we thought the world worked, that the largest, supposedly most aggressive, most heavily armed, most unfree society in the world, but basically around 1988 go, you know what? Nobody believes in this crap anymore. Are you going to defend it? I'm not going to defend it. Not one shot is fired. When they try and have a coup d'etat, even the security police don't care. That wasn't in the script. That's surprise. But it really shouldn't have been. Uncertainty doesn't mean anarchy, precisely because agents cannot live in anarchy. Hence, we socially construct uncertainty. And there's a lot of work now that's beginning to get to grips with this. This isn't just me doing John the Baptist for IR, screaming in the wilderness. There's the whole work in IR and constructivism, which I think we should pay attention to in political economy. There's economic sociology's work on scripts and framing. There's work on every discipline on norms and institutions. Look at behavioral economics and the new financial economics, what people actually do given the choice sets that they have. It's producing radically different outcomes from what normally assume. And we're all getting at one point. It's constructing the stability we act in. But we overreach by assuming that type 2 and type 3 stability is materially given rather than socially constructed. And that is, I submit, why we're surprised most of the time. Ideas matter. Norms matter. Conventions matter. Coordinative and communicative discourses matter. Institutions matter. Because that's all we have. That's what, in a sense, makes us political actors. This is what's there. But it is not given by the fact that the material environment dictates that country X will have these types of institutions. I do not wish to assume materiality completely, but at the same token, it has to be fundamentally interpreted. Otherwise, you would see convergence, one size fits all, and lots of things that we don't see. Let me give you some examples in closing of where this leads and why I think it's kind of productive. We think about the ideational basis of stability. You begin to notice things. Why is it that in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, capital flight is regarded as bad speculation, and now it's regarded as good discipline? What changed in the material environment? Not globalization, because the ideas are changing before the purported outcomes. Central bank is great if they're dependent, because then you can have a welfare state, and blah, 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 blah. Oops, nope, independent central bank's definitely the way to go. Interestingly, if you run around the world and look at how different countries receive globalization, you get really interesting outcomes here. Because globalization is a fact, but it's not as if we all walk out and look up in the sky and go, oh, look, relative prices have changed. These things are constructed. These things are mediated. If you go to Japan, you'll find that globalization is something to be accepted so we can retool the model we've got and get on with it. If you go to Britain, given the fact that Britain is Britain, it's something to be embraced. We'll embrace the contingency, as Blair actually said once, much to my amusement. If you go to Germany, it's something to be ignored and hope that it goes away. <laughs> and if you go to France, it's called mondialisation, Americanisation, and it's to be resisted at all costs. Why is the same set of material changes interpreted in such different ways and have such very different political consequences? So what does all this mean? I think the consequences of this are as follows. In a famous other quote, which I didn't write up because it's too long, Keynes suggested that we sometimes need a non-Euclidean geometry to understand our world since parallel lines occasionally meet. What I have suggested in this regard is that political science is no different from economics or topography in this regard. We actually do live in a much more non-Euclidean world. And if we keep drawing type 1 models to describe type 2 and type 3 situations, we're going to get into problems. Now, some things are type 1. I think legislatures are a good example of type 1 worlds. 
you know who the agents are, what the strategies are, you've got great historical data, you've got a closed system, the rules are easily identifiable to everybody, and the norms and conventions are transparent. Fine, game the crap out of it. Knock yourself out. Fantastic. You're actually doing good work. It's great. I'm not sure that just because a technology works in one area, it automatically transplants to another. Particularly when you talk about huge causal complexities. So what do we do? I think that what we need to do is make norms and ideas and conventions as central to our studies as interests and structures and strategies. No one is saying agents are irrational, especially if all rationality means it bases consistency. Rather, they should be seen as constructing stability that they take for granted in order to be rational in their choices. Rational choice and strategic action is something that is an emergent property that needs to be explained, not something necessarily off the shelf to do this explaining with. <coughs> Secondly, take surprise out of the error term and make it an object of investigation. The world is much more random and contingent than we think, and admitting this might make our theories much less instantly dated than they currently are. Now, does this mean that I'm giving up on social science? Does it mean that I think comparison is meaningless? Far from it. Precisely because agents construct stability out of similar and limited materials, past events are implicated in future outcomes. But it may make us think differently about how causal processes operate. I think this stuff on mechanisms is really interesting, but I actually think it's a dead end. Because essentially one takes a bunch of outcomes, retrodicts a bunch of possible causes, and ends up with lots of discrete stories. So that's the kind of historicist version of it. The other side of it is the analytic narratives one, which is essentially take a thing called the French Revolution, stick arbitrary boundaries around it, and then turn it into calculus. I don't see how that helps. The entire point of math is to reduce complexity, not to end up with infinite numbers of mathematical computations. So these types of things, I think people are running up against the same barriers, but I don't think they're approaching it in the right way. I think we need to be more generous about the complexity of the world. Think about imminent causation as opposed to efficient causation. Realize, for example, that you can have exactly the same or close to exactly the same set of causal conditions in one area, but because it happens in a later time period, it might not happen the same way. They're still implicated, but they may be implicated in a different way. If this sounds weird, think about the entire discipline of evolutionary biology. Everyone has a science that they like political science to be like. That's mine. Walk up to an evolutionist and say, make a prediction, and he'll laugh in your face. It doesn't mean anything in an evolutionary context. There's a really lovely book by Richard Lewontin called Gene, Organism, and Environment, which is an attack on the genetic basis of growth and causation, if you will, in um, models of causation based on microfoundations in biology. And he has a nice experiment where he takes exactly the same seed from exactly the same genetic stock in exactly the same soil in exactly the same conditions in exactly the same place. And one of them does this and one of them does that. There is no way of knowing. And if you have the complete picture of gene and organism and environment, focus on and each one gives you partial stories. But the whole is less than the sum of its parts. There's still uncertainty, there's still unpredictability, there's still contingency involved in this. And we really have to do this, I think, because the idea that as political scientists we make predictions is nothing short of a damn scandal. And eventually we're going to get found out. There's a guy called Didier Sornet, who I mentioned earlier, who's, I think, he's an econophysicist. He's a really interesting folks. They come out of quantum mechanics, and they do enormous, enormous, we're talking like 20 million variable at once, calculations, statistical calculations, statistical quantum physics. And they thought, let's, let's do this for a laugh, right? So he sent a couple of researchers off and got a bunch of econ journals and coded every prediction over 30 years. Guess what the result was? you had more chance of being right by literally guessing 
You had more chance of right by throwing things at a dartboard. You had more chance of, it were less than this, the error term. Our, 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 our ability to predict is laughable. Unless we're retrodicting things that are bloody obvious in the first place and we call them discoveries. Now, why am I, <laughs> why am I saying this and being so mean to my discipline? Because I wanted to survive, right? You know what? The funders are going to find out eventually. And I really like my job. And I think that we can Don't do something. Here's what, here's what I think political science does, right? I, I really believe this. This is what political science does best. We're the bullshit police, right? Because there's loads of ideas out there, basically welfare queens are sucking up the welfare state. Oh, no, they're not. Poor people, whatever. And we go around and we sniff them. And we go, no, sorry, that's bullshit, right? That's basically <laughs> This is what we're really good at, and we should do more of that. But if we keep saying that, like, you know, I have a theory that can explain democracy, revolution, this, that, and the next thing with two variables. You know what? It's really not tenable. We've been through that before. It's called modernization theory. It doesn't really work. So I'm asking for a little bit of humility. I'm asking for a more humble social science. And then maybe we won't get the funding pulled out from under us and we can continue to do what I think is the necessary work of political science. Thank you very much. I think you're insane, but nonetheless. <laughs> well, I'll talk about that later. Um, I thought, I, I guess I didn't see how the, the constructivist approach helped address the problem that you're raising. I mean, so many of the, you know, the constructivists, if we understand things like norms and conventions and identities better, and we bring those in more, if anything, those predict just as much stability um, as the material variable. Material so when these sudden drastic events or crises occur in the future, we're, we still don't have the tools to predict these sudden changes or crises. Mm -hmm. So what, why are we in a better position than we would have been with the material? Let me give you an example of that. Uh, it's, how, it's, it's part of the reason that I ended up writing the book that I did in 2002 the way that I did. And this is in the preface. Uh, don't read my book. Read the first three pages. The preface is the best about the book. Because uh, it's one of those zing moments where you're like, I, I got it, I got it. Um, and here it was. Um, I can tell stories about, uh, let's say, um, why you get particular cross-class political alignments. And they're to do with the fact that we're in the export sector and there's a trade downturn. And that means that we ally or we don't ally vis-a-vis -vis these other people who've got these different factors or assets or whatever. And that's what the materialist story is. And then when you actually get into it, you find things like, well, you know what, the supposed coalition that's there because of these common interests has never actually formed or it's not politically efficacious, or it's actually ridiculous, because you know what, these guys hate each other. They were involved in lockouts, strikes, putches, revolutions. I mean, they're up against the wall, one sending Pinkertons on the other. That's what the constructivism can bring in. Because it complicates it, but it complicates it in a productive way. Because I don't read interests off of coal or coalitional alignments, off of supposed immutable facts. Those facts are interpreted by the agents on the ground. So to take one very simple example, the deflation of the 1930s. One common material fact, prices fall, produces social democracy, fascism, and Stalinism. That's what constructivism does. Because unless you deal with the way that people look at these moments and interpret them, which is the constructivist value added, then I don't think you can really tell convincing stories. Because then you end up saying, well, there's variation here, but don't you worry about that, because basically what's happening here, and you end up with these ad hoc fixes, you know, putting elastoplast on them. So I think that, yes, you're right, but that's precisely why we need to do it because it will give us greater analytic specificity. We need to be more careful about what we're doing. 
But just to, to quickly follow up, and I, I guess I, uh, I mean, I see your point. On the other hand, of course, if we go with more variables and go back to a case, we'll be able to explain it better, whether those variables are quote unquote constructivist or material. So either way, we probably have a more complete explanation if we brought in more variables. Um, but I guess, especially a lot of the constructivists that, that you mentioned early on in the, the US Academy, most of them are doing very sort of standard, the same type of social science that quote, the non-constructivists are doing. They're just using different variables, but they're using the past to predict the future. It's the same standard, they're using the same probability distribution, they just have different variables. So I guess I would say as it's practiced by most constructivists, at least in the US Academy, I don't see that it's any better than the material versions which are proceeding with basically the same results. Just in a very brief response, I agree, but I also disagree. I actually think that it does get better explanations, certainly by the fact that you're in more in the nitty gritty. And it's not just adding more variables, because adding more variables is ad hocery. And if you actually start with, no, you take what is there in the specific historical moment is so generous, and you don't assume that the same things apply everywhere and all times, then you end up with case-specific stories, which hopefully then lead to generalization. You don't start with the presumption of it. That would be one way of looking at it. Randy. Yeah, that was a great talk. I agree with everything you said, uh, but that's a first. <laughs> it actually is a first. It is a first. It really is. Uh, but um, let me play devil's advocate, and let me think what Walt would say in response. Since you singled out New York yeah. and I don't think it's central to what you're saying. Um, first of all, I think the answer to this question should have been something like precedent or learning, because what you're saying is that precedent matters, learning matters. That would be enough. But Walt's probably said, well, look, I, why are you blaming me? I said that uncertainty, anarchy and uncertainty is what causes conflict. That's why you have persistent conflict. I don't deny uncertainty, and I don't define it as risk. I define it as uncertainty. And if we go into specifics, like he has social constructivist elements in his, and ideas matter, emulation. He doesn't tell you what they're going to emulate or what. He just says they will emulate the most successful practices. And he doesn't even have rationality. He says, I don't, mm -hmm. I don't assume rationality. I'm just saying that there's a Darwinian selection process. So, so that, that's one of the, but I think it, right before you talk, I was, we were having a discussion about uncertainty and uh, Jennifer Mitson's uh, notions about ontological security. And so mm -hmm. let me get, uh, I'll give you a specific example, something I've been thinking of lately that fits right into your talk, I think. Um, security dilemma, the relationship between security dilemma and spiral model. Well, obviously, Jervis, Rick Columbus, right? This right. is his, his area. He's pretty much a realist. Well, what is it? He says security dilemma is essentially hedging. There's uncertainty. I don't know your intentions. Mm -hmm. It's not probabilistic. I just don't know. So I hedge. I build weapons. You see that? You hedge. You build weapons. Now, what is the spiral? The spiral model is a psychological overlay onto a security dilemma. I rigidly have to, I'm uncertain at first, but now that I have to build weapons to hedge, either for reasons of cognitive closure, I want to believe that you're an aggressor since I'm building weapons, I, I'm overly confident about you being an aggressor over time. So I, I'm looking for certainty. I'm imposing Absolutely. certainty, right? Yeah. For cognitive reasons or also domestic reasons. Mm -hmm. so, so it seems to me that realism sort of in, incorporates a lot of your points. I mean, I, I would bash institutional, institutionalism or rationalism, or formal theory. Well, I, I was bashing him here simply because I was coming to an IR institute. I mean, that's why I was picking on him. Um, but more to the point, I mean, I'm really glad that you finally became a constructivist. <laughs> because this is what's happened, right? And I think that that's great. I think that what people do in the security studies now, because if you look back at Watts, like, you're right, he doesn't say the content of emulation. 
But it's kind of clear that it mimics the distribution of capabilities of the, major, the actors in the system, balance, bandwagon, and all the stuff that comes out of it. It's not hide. It's not transcend. It's not invent the UN, right? I mean, that's just not in the script. And it could be. So I, I have no problem with that at all. Regarding the ontological security stuff, I think that's really interesting. Actually, Sarah and I were talking about similar issues when we were having breakfast, right? That the idea... That, that sounded worse than it, than it was, sorry. Uh, but... Um, <laughs> Sorry, I had to make that gag. I used to be a stand-up, what can I tell you? Um, but, um, yeah, exactly. Um, but you can look at, uh, you know, why do people grab onto certain ideas? And there's two ways of looking at this. One is a kind of ontological security one. But there's another one which, in a sense, I think complements our actual choice perspective very well. Imagine you move from here to rural Nebraska, and everybody was a fundamentalist Christian. How long do you think you'd hold out? if you were an atheist. I mean, just start eventually, if you want to survive in that community, you're going to have to eventually start nodding to this, talking in this way, making some words about Jesus every now and again, the underrogatory, blah, blah, blah. And after a while, you start to live it. And once you live it, is there a real distinction between belief and action at that point? Because you're doing it anyway. So I think that this is totally implicated in the way that human beings actually behave, and that's something else we need to be much more aware of. Because things blow up. Not if we construct them strongly. But we never do. Because the equilibrium is always a moving target. See, I don't get how point one and point two can be consistent. Um, point one assumes that if you get to classical war, well, classes, I mean, just like sort of like the economic terms of that, right? Um, if you get to sort of the world of classicism where market's clear and there's no externalities and so on and so forth, general equilibrium, you end up there and you get it. But we know in real life that economies fall out of that and end up in low equilibrium traps and do well and then do badly and so on and so forth. And part of the problem is the very action of the second best problems, right? The very action of changing one bit alters something somewhere else so that you end up in a position you don't really want to go to. So, for example, um, by starting the second Cold War, rhetorically, the Reagan administration empowered people in a Nemo who then became the new thinkers who then inadvertently started the discourse of Glasnost and Perestroika, which was completely alien to the Soviets, that nobody ever thought was possible, which changed the parameters of the games and the institutions that they were in. So the very fact that you sit and construct something creates the tensions and resistances. Political science is very good at exogenous sources of change, right? Institutional stability, that's the way I used to do it. Institutional stability, certainty, boom, someone comes along and disrupts it. But there's endogenous sources of change that come in from the very fact that you constantly have to re 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 you constantly have to recreate the stability that you're making. Right, but I think this is precisely the problem, because if that's in fact the case, how confining can any of these rules or expectations or institutions really be? So we really are in a world of uncertainty, we really are in a world of uncertainty, and there isn't actually social disruption out there. I don't think that necessarily falls. I know why you're saying that, but I think that's too hard. I think that those things are constructed and they stick together for a long time, in some cases, and a very short time in other cases. The League of Nations was a total disaster. The UN's been around in whatever form it's been in for a long time. And sometimes these things are important, sometimes they're not, because of variables that are kind of off our scope. They're not the thing that we're looking at themselves. So there is endogenous instability in any stable social system. Because there's, no in there's an interaction term that we're talking about, we are part of the very thing that you know, we're studying and so on and so forth. So because of that, the stability is fleeting. 
but in historical times, fleeting can be 40 years. So I study Sweden, for example, right? The number of times, you know, go back in the economics literature, it's hilarious. In the 1950s, this welfare state's going to crash and burn, these taxes are too high, blah, blah, blah. The same story over and over and over again. And eventually, Shia lifted a report in 2002 called The Bumblebee. It flies, but we don't know why. Right? <laughs> it really did. This is it. It's a bumblebee. It flies, but we don't know why. Now, that works, but it doesn't work anywhere else. So, there's very few places that type of sets of institutions and beliefs and practices come together to make a stable life orbit. It's a very different equilibrium from the one that pertains in the United States, or whatever. And those things change all the time. So, I, I think that it's a continuum rather than separation. We don't have all for nothing. Always kind of in the middle, even if the distribution itself is misleading. Um, I wanted to, to raise a question about your claim at the end that this doesn't challenge the idea of doing social science. Um, and the starting point for the question really is your suggestion that the subject and object begin to collapse because the actions of social scientists are, in some sense, contributing to the system. So it's a participatory universe that you're sort of outlining in our relationship to the social world. And the whole idea of social science traditionally conceived is the separation of fact and value, where the observers and their stuff over there that we're looking at, and we don't have any impact on it. When you break that distinction down, it seems like you break down the distinction between fact and value, at least you begin to divide that distinction. And what you do, in effect, is break down the distinction between positive theory and normative theory. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering whether this conception of social science and social life um, has inherent normative implications for social scientists that we need to take into consideration as we do social science. And so is it really then science in the traditional sense of the word? My favorite answer, um, that I think more academics should adopt, is the following, I don't know. Um, and I'm going to say that, but then I'm going to have a stab at it. I'm going to say yes, and I'm going to say no. And here's my yes argument. If you believe that there's such a thing as objectivity, given a, a set of outcomes, and you're trying to evaluate those outcomes, this is inherently evaluatory. So are welfare subsidies a waste of time? There's an inherent normative question behind that. Because it's a distributional question. And because it's a distributional question, some people get more, some people get less. And you simply can't escape from that. That's us as the bullshit police, to use that example. And I think that we're implicated in that, whether we like it or not. When I was at grad school, Jack Snyder used to always say when we were writing these uh, short essays in first and second year, uh, what's the policy implications? And being a good social scientist raised in economics, I was like, this is advice to princes. This is, this, this is ridiculous. Well, what are we doing here? But that's perfectly acceptable on some level, but not because that's still science. So I actually see this as, as inherently problematic of what we do anyway. Second one, no. And here's my no. It's not the fact that I'm implicated as a social scientist in what I'm observing. I am. But I'm just me, and I don't count. What matters is the agents themselves that I'm studying and their choices and how that's implicated in the outcome that I'm looking at, this supposed transcendentally separate object. Because I think I can tell a better story about what goes on by recognizing the subject-object collapse. A good example is this sociologist called Donald McKenzie wrote this beautiful essay called An Equation in Its Worlds. And it's about the Black-Scholes theorem. It makes a wonderful point, which is, the equation itself becomes self-stabilizing in financial markets. It actually changes the way the markets work. Because if once everybody started using the option prices model, they started to think in terms of the parameters of the model and specification of the model, so they only operated within the terms of the model, which completely changed the way that the markets viewed risk and so on and so forth. Then people started to bet on them using long-term call options, long call options, saying, look, you know what, everybody's doing this, and it's creating all this sort of skewness of the curve and likely outcomes over here, but these things are still happening. 
So I can make a billion dollars betting on the far end of the tail and eventually it blows up the system. The fact that that technology, that set of ideas, was put in there by the agents, created the interactive effect which created the outcome. Now if we can't study that as social scientists, then there's no social science. So that, that would be my answer. Yes, sir. I agree with everything you said, I think, and I, um, I think I understand most of it. I'm puzzled, though, why the, some of our allied fields seem to have understood this a long time ago. And it's taken so long, especially IPE. You know, Douglas North won the Nobel Prize 15 years ago almost. And, and so I agree with what you're saying. I was at a meeting with Douglas North about 10 years ago about cocaine and a number of others. And you would have thought North was from Mars. <laughs> and not about to win the Nobel Prize. And, you know, subsequently, well, actually, before that, Herbert Simon won, subsequently, Tversky, and Kahn won. And it's not because these are new. You win the Nobel Prize 20 years after you sort of did whatever your invention was, and it's had a long time to percolate along. And what I sensed in some of the allied field, especially behavioral economics, uh, experimental economics, and, and psychology, is that what you'd be saying, and even in philosophy, in your last time when you talked about that, they, they would say that's Hegel and young Marx, and everyone knew that 150 years ago. And this is, what are we doing here? In the sense that they're understanding the participant observer problem and, and reification of models and their impact on social science. This is in 19th century. Uh, this is the Lepotus, right? Yeah. And, and so here we are in 2005, wondering if we can introduce these radical ideas in IPE. And, and I'm just curious, why? I mean, why are we having, why has it been so hard in, in this field? And, and why has it seemed so novel? That's what's so peculiar. That our field, you know, you mentioned all the people who we're yeah. using as guideposts, but never Douglas North, never the people who have really. Everybody knows this. The thing is, if you go into the World Bank, you find that every single development economist has a copy of Dog North on their shelf, on the top shelf at the right hand side. It's not the one that gets pulled off. Yeah. It's up there. Yeah, I've got it. I'll just leave it there. Um, <laughs> again, I don't know, but you've given me a really good way of starting this, this essay that I'm trying to write for the APSR. Um, I think it has to do with what I've been talking about. Which is, we learn a set of languages and skills and technologies. And those languages, skills and technologies assume that the world is this. And it's not. And then when it blows up, we call it an error. Or for the rest, all the things I've been talking about. And it's very hard to shift that because people have investments in them. The most specific asset of all are our intellectual investments. It's very, very hard to give up. So I think there's a sociological reason, number one. The second one is political science is the most derivative discipline in the world. And IP is probably the derivative of the derivative, because it is sort of a, a, a distillation of a bit of economics and a bit of historical sociology and a bit of history and a bit of that and a bit of the next thing. And when you have that, I think this is ontological security comes to mind here, in the sense that, well, what do we do and what are we for? And, you know, my, I'm, I'm doing a, a, a big sort of encyclopedia project for my sins. I don't know why I tried to do this. Um, comparing the IP tradition in Europe with the IP tradition in the United States. And it's really fascinating to see the difference in between them because the European ones, if I walked in and gave this talk in Paris, they'd call me a positivist. Huh? If I give this talk in some places here, I'd run out of the building. Now, 
what is this? Is it cultural? I mean, it, it's very hard to get a defined handle on it. I think part of it is sort of specific intellectual assets, to use that language. Part of it is security or insecurity, anxiety. Um, and part of it is the fact that it feels very derivative. Um, I, the problem I have, if I want to know about trade, right, I want to ask a trade economist. I won't ask an IPE trade economist. And that's me. So I think there's a lot of, what are we for? What are we doing? I think that might have something to do with it. You were about to yeah. come back. Sometimes constructivism, as it's understood in political uh, science, IR, is sort of seen as um, not using the, the tools of science. And I wonder if that's, that's part of this. Because one of the things I know is most different about the way this discussion has proceeded in international relations and political science, as opposed to, say, in economics and psychology, is that people who advance us in those fields continue to use the language, scientific mathematics, and uh, to discuss uncertainty <coughs> and risk, I mean, the kinds of things you've been talking about, they unpack in mathematical formulas. And so they're seen by the National Science Foundation, as you call it, funders. Yeah. Uh, and very much in natural <coughs> language, normal science kind of enterprises. They understand these things and they represent them. Where we sort of uh, brought constructivism very often as sort of a shorthand for not quantitative. Mm -hmm. And you get punished for that, absolutely. If you but do research, has nothing to do with the intellectual discussion. Totally. You, you can do surveys on really, really stupid stuff and get money for it. Right? It's very hard to get funding to do constructivist work because it doesn't fit the dominant models of what social science looks like. And that itself is a sociological construct that should reinforce the very points I'm trying to make. Because there's no reason why. It's a language. Mathematics is not a technology, it's a language. It's no different from German. You simply take a sentence in English and you turn it into German. You take it in English and turn it into calculus. If the analytic art is wrong, you could have told you anything. It should have told you that. And a language is neutral. It doesn't mean it's true. And the confusion that you see sometimes, particularly with people who are neophytes of this, the difference between formal proof of derivation of assumptions from basic axia and empirical proof is aligned all the time. I've got proof for that. It doesn't mean it means it's proof. We didn't stand up in court. Now, when I have arguments with economists about this, one of the ones that I like to throw out is why is every legal document where property is at risk in every country in the world written in a language other than mathematics, if mathematics is so precise? If it gets rid of ambiguity, if it shows you exactly what's going on, why is it we don't use it for anything to do with money? I don't know, but I think it's kind of interesting. So, yeah, a couple of questions that I'm going to get in one of our points. I wonder, first, <coughs> I wonder if you're not letting uh, constructivism as it's practiced in IR way too easily. Um, because, in fact, the problem of contingency, in, which I always took as being fundamental to the constructivist project, what is constructivism? It's playing about social and historical contingencies. It's playing about, say, the idea of, you know, sort of denaturalizing social facts, right? A lot of what you read now in constructivist literature, particularly the, the norms literature, right, is, is, is structural, is equilibrium. Right? I mean, it's just, you know, okay, we've got a set of norms uh, compelling actors to do things, and uh, given certain two by twos or sets of variations, we get an equilibrium outcome on norm compliance or norm non compliance, right? Or norm adaptation or norm non adaptation. So, in a sense, I think that, you know, I understand what you're doing, but I wonder whether, you know, you're sort of holding up a bunch of names, constructors here excluded, right? Who sort of, you know, as like, people that IP or should learn from who are really not doing anything epistemologically like, like you're recommending, right? The second sort of uh, question I have is um, you, 
You say that mechanism work is a dead end, and I'd like you to elaborate. I knew you'd get me for that. Right? I knew, I'd, I'd love you to elaborate on that, because most of the people who focus on these kinds of problems, for example, in sociology, people like Charles Tilley or Harrison White, mm -hmm. right? And Harrison's White, White's ontology of social of society is all about the social closure of contingent, the contingent social closure of contingency, right? All of these people think they can rest their hats mm -hmm. on mechanisms and processes, right? Making the same kinds of points about contingent configurations, uh, making the same kinds of points about how events at t t not, uh, T1 uh, get endogenized in events at T2, right? Mm -hmm. I, I'm not sure, but they make strong claims about this. I mean, I've echoed some of those claims in my own work as sort of a, a way to work around. It strikes me in particular that if you get contingent social closures, right, which I would call structural conditions, right, that have endogenous logics to them, then isn't the kind of claim these people make about, okay, well, we get these kinds of processes and let's look at how in historically specific instances adjacent processes and mechanisms mm -hmm. come together to then produce some sort of a pathway that's unique, you know. I mean, I, maybe they're just doing the very similar conical analysis, but whatever, right? So those are the two things I want to talk to well, I think you answered the last one, um, but, but I'll give you my answer on it. Um, the mechanism stuff. The stuff I was particularly referring to is, and I, I really wanted to like this stuff. I really did want to like it because it does deal with the similarities. But it was more of the sort of Swedborg, Elster type stuff that you know, really was the first wave of the sort of the Chuck Tilly stuff. And I came up against a problem, which is if everything is a unique sort of signal pathway, to put it that way, you know, and it stops then it doesn't really have resonance in the next bit. It's really good at describing causal pathways from A to B at time T from 1 to T2, but then the link to T3 is really non-existent. And that's why I kind of have problems with it. Now, I don't know if I've said anything better here, right? but that's one of my takes on it. The second one with the Tilly type stuff is, um, I read the Tilly McAdam, you know, there's a big one that they did a few years ago. Yeah, that one's kind of well, this is, no, but this is the thing, I read that and at the end of it, I was like, I have no idea what this book is saying. It really gave me nothing to understand the wall work, right? So I'm sympathetic, but I'm also critical of it in its present instantiation. The more interesting one being the first point, right? Am I letting um, constructivism off easy in this way? Um, yes, I probably am, but there's two reasons for this. The first one, the serious reason is this. Um, stability needs to be explained before we can explain change. And even if norm stories are equilibrium stories, they're better equilibrium stories than it's a not equilibrium because of gains in trade. I think that's true as if many things can be characterized as that. Some things actually are that. Here's a question I've always had about game theory. Do the participants in a game have to know they're a game in order to play the game? Or are we just simply sticking a network over at the end that says, hey, that looks like prison dynamic? And if we are doing the latter, we're categorizing as if, we're not explaining as is. It's a very different thing. So I think that these types of explanations, even if they are equilibrium explanations, actually have better equilibrium explanations. And if you have good equilibrium explanations, you might get better change stories. The second reason I'm being nice to all these people is because I'm being a leveraged buyer. That's what this is. I want all these people in my camp because I want to take them and take this stuff and dump it in IPE. So I'm not going to piss off everyone. I'll have no allies, and then I will be John the Baptist. There's no point. This is not to say that strategy isn't constructive. It is. Can I actually um, uh, wanted you to clarify two more things. The first is, 
you know, it's funny because I had this conversation with you and I had this conversation with Kate, right, when this project sort of was getting underway. And then I go to ISA and I'm on a panel with Anna Leander, right, and it's all about how IP is dominated by constructivism, right, and some of that is the European versus American distinction, but it seems to me like that, that you sort of allied in this, <laughs> right? I mean, certainly I read you know, your journal, right? <laughs> and it's pretty hardcore constructivist, and, uh, you know, and, and I do, so I, Maybe some, you know, it seems to me that just invoking sort of cultural state differences, I don't know. All right, but anyway, second question, I really wanted to come back. I think there's an illusion here between what people call epistemological contingency and ontological contingency, right? Because you're making a wager that says the world really is contingent. It is indeterminate, right? Um, but know, that's a claim about the underlying um, generator, right? That's no different than a claim that says it's it is not contingent, but there is an underlying probability, mm -hmm. right? So how do we know we're in that world versus we're in a world of epistemological contingency, right? We're just, we're stalking humans. We don't know all this shit. Right? Well, we can't know it all, so that's true, but I think that's trivially true. Because we can't know it all means we can't know it all, so we can't know it all. I mean, that doesn't really go anywhere. The second one is the first point. Our theories blow up far more often than they should. We hold them with incredible um, faith that these things tell us things. And then they usually evaporate really quickly. I mean, you know, think about the history of comparative politics. Right? Behaviorism, right? It's triumph. Dahl writes that piece in '61, the behavioral revolution, and it dies. Modernization theory. It's at its high point when dictatorships are emerging in Latin America and development sliding backwards. Integration theory. This has been written in the United States at the same time as the modern integrated white elite are beating the living shit out of black people on television. It's a televised falsification of a theory. We can go on. The Marxist moment. Can't do that in the American Academy. Let's spruce it up and call it state theory. Let's move on from there. Let's have historical institutionalism. But what's causing this? Why are we jumping from theory to theory? Is it the constant desire to say something new? That might be part of it. And that's particularly true with welfare state studies, where we've actually now reached the hypothesis whereby employers are part of the work invented the welfare state, and all unions had to do was get out of the way and they would have put the weekend, which I find <laughs> truly astonishing. Um, so that's part of it, but you know, I also think part of it is the fact that looking at the world as a set of normal distributions and probabilistic outcomes just doesn't work, and we've got to stop it. Well, I'm a little confused about that, because on the one hand, we, we're, we're supposed to pull our theories too hard, and on the other hand, you just said we falsify the hog all the time, and we're dropping the restriction from one to the other, so are we, are we, are we too popularian or not popularian Um Looking at Popperian lenses, we're not Popperian enough because Popper never took science that seriously. Um, so I would be more—I want us to be more Popperian in that sense. Um, but the world falsifies our theories. We don't. That's the thing. We—we—we at the time of the end of the Cold War. Ronnie will back me up on this one, right? Because it's footnoted in one of the books that came out around that time. There was a big conference, basically, and all the neorealists got together this big conference and basically went, what are we going to do? <laughs> <laughs> and then they came out with a sort of a strategy. It was basically obfuscation, right? This is what we're going to do, and this is what we're going to say, and so on and so forth. Well, the world comes along and falsifies your theories. We don't. Can I that should be telling us something. <laughs> Can I respond? So I don't, I don't, honestly, I don't think what we came up with is bullshit. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right, they did. Waltz, no, he never said when power polls come and go, right? The, the, like the comparatives didn't tell us that the Soviet Union is made of had feet of clay, right? There's a, but what did if the Soviet Union? What did they do? They emulated the United States, right? I mean, they emulated our, they're emulating us, 
right? Isn't that what law firms do emulate successful practice? They look more like us than we do like them. Like the fact that Gorbachev came, even became the leader of the Soviet Union mm -hmm. meant they were losing power. They had to do something. They got, he got on the, on the tiger's back, he couldn't get off. They looked more like us, right? Now what is inconsistent with saying that power is what drove the end of the Cold War? Right. I mean, it, they were losing power, we were gaining power, they looked more like us, they gave up all of Eastern Europe, they gave up two layers of empire. I mean, I don't think the theories are completely wrong. I think you're, you're here, I just think your you're, prediction isn't as important to me as explanation. We may not be able to predict what's going to happen, we don't know the values of variables. But if we can, the, the, the acid test is whether we can go back and say, does our explanation make sense? Do the principles of our theories can they explain what happened? Not can they predict them? In that case, I would agree with you, but to then take the form of the part that you pushed as well. But if that theory can explain the end of the Cold War, as you just described it, and the non-end of the Cold War simultaneously. So, oh. because you should predict balance, and emulation should be basically marshalling everything for the distribution of capabilities. If it's going to end, it's going to end badly, particularly if you the Gilpin version of the story, etc., etc. Now, if you predict A and not A out of the same theoretical framework, it's not even explaining. Right? You know, you, imagine you were sort of 16 years old, you come home drunk for the first time, you've been said, where have you been? I've got a story for you that completely contradictorily explains two totally different outcomes. Not really going to hang, is it? Underspecified. the answer to Marcus. <laughs> <laughs> Underspecified. Lots of variables. Underspecified. I have the impression that for me anyway, the answer to Marcus's observation is not that we don't change theories, but we don't remember until someone comes and tells us that we used to do, we used to think the other. So that what happens, and I very much agree with this talk, we're way overconfident in any particular theory of the moment. And in next month, next year, we'll forget that the theory was wrong. You know, and that uh, you know, it was just two or three years ago we were saying there was going to be a clash of civilizations and a common Western world was going to line up against Islam. You know, 18 months later, Americans were from Venus and Europeans were from Mars, and no one even remembered. We used to think the other way, and you go on and on and on. It just seems to me that we're your point is we're really we're very overconfident in our ability. Uh, our theories get falsified because we are cosmists in a certain sense. Uh, we adjust as Randy's doing here. It <laughs> 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 doesn't wait at all. <laughs> we're certain it just was, we were right all over to remember how wrong we were. Until some smart kid comes along and says, you went there yesterday? <laughs> but don't we selectively persecute certain theories? I mean, the dominant theory goes down. Uh, nobody else goes down. Nobody else predicted the end of the Cold War. Why was realism responsible for it? <laughs> I throw that one out and keep everything out. But that's a fair enough point, but it's a sociological point. Right? Why is it? Because it's the big kid in the block. The one that was saying, no, I really can't explain this. It's the one that's held by the big people in the field that you're reading graduate classes. And there's a certain schlammy father to the whole thing. When that goes pear-shaped, you want to go, nah, 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 nah. So that's why that one gets picked on. And that we're, we're, that's where we're implicated in the subject object as well. Yeah, fine. Well, I think it's just a quick question that builds on Randy's point. Uh, I'm trying to figure out where you come down on the issue of there are three possibilities. One is that you think there's no value in these predictions, so we shouldn't do it. The other is that you think prediction is futile, so we shouldn't do it. And the other is you think we should do prediction, but we should bring in more constructive variables in order to do it. And I'm deeply conflicted in the answer as all of the above. Uh, I'll explain why. Uh, I was at a talk at the Wilson Center, and in the conversation, there was a guy who identified himself as being from the Pentagon. 
And it was actually on, it was on projection. It was projecting you know, very complex things in the social world. And he said, uh, well, I was asked to predict the price of gasoline for the Pentagon. And what we did was we basically took away a time series of past prices and projected forward. And our estimates were that to go from $24 to 35 But then it calmed down at about 30 And uh, boy, you know, we didn't see that one coming at $50 a barrel. So I asked a question. The question was, so what do you do now? Do you just throw your time series in the bin and start again? Oh no, we basically weight that in as a new factor. So that basically we rise the price of a dollar by about, uh, the price of a barrel by about a dollar a month, the longer it stays 50. So according to Pentagon's accounting technique, it's now about $37 a barrel, even though it's 50. Right? Now, what's that for? Right? I mean, that's, they're predicting the price of gasoline, and it's there, it's, it's in your face, right? That's it, it's $50 a barrel. And their models refuse to admit that, because that would be the wrong procedure to do to price gasoline future prices. That's when prediction becomes pointless, right? Somebody I've mentioned here before, and I seem to have very, very smart board, wrote a wonderful book called Fooled by Randomness, that actually started me on this whole kicking up to writing some papers with them. Um, there's a wonderful line for this one. Imagine you're flying a plane, and the altimeter works 50% of the time. Do you look at the altimeter, or do you stick your head out the window? I say you stick your head out the window, because then you've got better information to make predictions. I'm still interested in predicting if I'll get to my destination in my life plane, but I'm not going to rely on a technology that's right 50% of the time, because I could fly into a mountain. Thank you all. There's an article by you raised this issue of whether, you know, in game theory, do the players have to know that they're playing the game?